and welcome back to another exciting episode of Adventuring Academy. I'm your humble dungeon master, Brennan Lee Mulligan. This is our show where we talk about all things related to running tabletop games at your table, all of the tips and tricks and theory behind collaborative storytelling with your pals uh, in this wonderful medium we call tabletop. Oh my goodness, our guest today, I am so excited to have him here. You know him, you love him. He is the dungeon master for Rude Tales of Magic, an incredible D&D actual play podcast uh, taking place in the first draft of reality that's so-called uh with an incredible cast of characters uh uh and maybe even a, a a guest player that you might recognize uh his work has been featured on late night with tess myers we bear bears uh also an illustrator of a, an ongoing series called swan boy you probably know this incredible comedic mastermind from all kinds of awesome web comics you've seen uh including uh the the originator of the one fear web comic uh as well as the sharks are smooth guy uh Hello, story pirate uh, and acclaimed uh, dungeon master, Mr. Branson Reese. Hey, oh, Brennan, what an intro. Jesus. <laughs> Thank you so much. I need you to like hype me up from as like, like go to the bodega. <laughs> I know just throw, just bouncing around, throwing rose petals in front of your feet. It's what I, it's what I love doing. I love to hype. What can I say? Uh, Branson, it's a goddamn delight to have you on the podcast today. It's How are so, you doing? I swear, right? Yes, oh, fuck. It's so fucking nice to see you. I don't know what I can say and not say. I know the location of our troops. I don't want to say that on the air, you know. <laughs> but I just want to be careful. Of course. There's highly confidential information that needs to be kept close to the chest, and I understand that. Um, uh, Branson, so, so we have known each other for a long time, well prior to being in the Dungeons and Dragons tabletop actual play space oh, together. Yeah. Uh, we knew each other back from improv days in New York City and and doing Story Pirates together, um, which is something, I feel like Story Pirates is one of those things that a lot of people in our Dimension 20 world maybe don't know that well, but would be absolutely amazed at the secret mafia of some of their favorite creators and performers that share this commonality of a Story Pirates background together. Um, it's wild. I can, I feel like I can like smell it on people, you know, like when they've done, even like a week of Story Pirates, it's like, it just it gets in you, especially when you like start young, like and it, it like becomes part of like how you perform. It's, it's uh yeah, you're right. It's like this like shared this little secret handshake. It really is, and it's an incredible thing too because it's very funny for for even being at because I think one thing that Dimension Twenty and Rude Tales do sort of share is at times an extremely uh, adult sensibility in terms of content that is is run across. Yeah, what's uh, twice? Once or twice, go to some yeah. some some uh, potentially gory or or insane places, or or make light of some, you know, what, 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 would, what would a television like censor say, like adult themes? Um, I think a television censor would like walk into the river if they had to like deal with, you know, it would just. I quit. It's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. I have to. This is the end for me. Um, this episode is three minutes long. Uh, but I do think that there is a Story Pirates vibe and commonality, even though, so for those who don't know, Story Pirates is an awesome organization that takes the words and ideas of young people, goes to schools all around uh, the country and uh, helps kids learn creative writing and storytelling, and then has adult performers go and perform those stories writ large, these big sort of goofy comedic adult performers. So kids get to see adults honoring their words and ideas. 
Um, and I feel like you can tell a lot of story pirates too from having this ability to tap into this gregarious, living cartoon, larger than life energy, which uh, for me, I see that like um, energy so much within Rude's tales. So I wanna turn it over to you to talk a little bit about like giving us the, the sort of like whirlwind tour of the Branson Reese biography in terms of just your creative and storytelling sensibilities leading up to Rude Tales, because I think that one of the things I love the most about Rude Tales is how, you know, in the same way that I have mutual friends, you know, uh, who have their work informed by different elements of culture, you know, like uh, friends of friends of the show, like Matt Mercer and how incredible he is with the incredible high fantasy of the world that he runs. Oh, yeah. And... Murph, who runs a NAD pod, who has this in incredible mind for encounters and this sort of like rich epic plot lines that kind of mirror to like, when I think of like Final Fantasy, I kind of think of Murph. And then I get to Rude Tales and it is this gregarious, larger than life. Like you've talked about how much Looney Tunes is a- Talk about it. I've never shut the fuck up about it. Oh yeah, I love, <laughs> love Looney Tunes. That was my guy growing up you know what i mean it just was like that was the i've talked with this uh, uh carly on, on rude tales we've talked about this before of like when i was a kid uh, i don't know what happened on nickelodeon they just bought up a bunch of like looney tunes real estate i don't know what happened it was just always on and so you know when i was a kid back like let's say 10 13 years ago it was on all the time i'm currently let's say 22 23 maybe it was on all the time and it was it just like got into my brain this was like before i was like reading very much as before I was like listening to music is like that was like one of the first primary influences so like for me when I'm running Dungeons and Dragons or you know, Rude Tales like it's uh, people sometimes you know like a, a fan will be like Branson like how did you like design what were you thinking when you designed this encounter and it's, I always want to be like buddy like this is like year one of me with Dungeons and Dragons is it like you know, I'm way, I mean, I'm an old soul in terms of being like a, a cartoon dipshit. Like, so my first instinct isn't going to be like, what's the stat block on this orc? It's going to be like, all right, there's a big guy. That means, you know, he's going to hold you at his arm's length and you're going to swing at him saying why I ought it. Like, that's the, that's the rules. You know, that's like how reality works for me or how we think it should work. Uh, I love that as a jumping off point because I think that what people, um, uh, uh, not to get all cosmic about it right away, but um, in terms of a lot of fans of shows have this kind of like order to chaos spectrum, like law versus chaos spectrum that yeah. they tend to sort shows on, um, you know, and there are, you know, this sort of idea of like, okay, on the one end are these shows with like extremely dramatic consequences where the rules of physics are rarely bent and, you know, we can sort some shows over here. And then all the way under the spectrum are these shows where whether they're functioning by rule of cool or they're functioning by just like some other set of physics are like chaos. And to me, as someone who I think maybe falls more in the middle of that spectrum, uh, the one of the things I really love is this idea of like, well, chaos and order are really descriptors of your point of view, because things mm. always are functioning by some sort of causality. And when we understand that causality and can name it, we call that order. And when we are unaware or in the dark about the system of rules, we call that chaos. 
And I think that what that the the sort of sense of comfort that brings to me is I when I listen to Root Tales of Magic, the systems at work within it and the guiding principles that guide you and your cast who for all the incredible shenanigans and oh boy if you haven't listened to rude tales the shenanigans that name again is rude tales of magic uh uh, itunes i think it's on spotify you know five star review would go a long way hard plug in the first 15 minutes hard see (laughs) but What's so incredible about it is that for me, especially as someone who went on and guested on it, like the, I think what I love about what you just said is this idea of cartoon logic is a form of logic. The physics of getting an anvil dropped on you and then you accordion pop out and wobble off down the street. There are things about that that are reliable. Um, uh, As someone who, who I think like is a great beacon for people that want to get a master class in uh, uh, like sort of anti-crunch play, right? Like not getting bogged down in the rules, <laughs> but like making an incredibly satisfying play experience while having a very rules light approach to the game. Um, uh, I wanted to ask like, because I'm very aware listening to it and even being on it for an episode of the the for lack of a better word the rules system that you guys are actually using which has to do with cleaving to this genre and theme and having this improviser sensibility so i i want you to talk more about that thing of like given that you are not this person who's going to stat out the monster block and xyz other thing um if you had to articulate what is guiding you instead of that what would you articulate as the set of agreements guiding you and your players through that story world together? Brennan, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to match your energy here, and I uh, you like to do it. I get a little manic, but it's, I guess I would say probably what it is. So you remember that scene in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I think everyone knows this scene. It's, you know what it is. It's, but you know, maybe some people listening at home are young, or maybe they're very old and they don't know it, or maybe they don't care about, I don't know, but you haven't seen it. There's a scene where, uh, you know, Eddie Valiant is handcuffed to Roger Rabbit. He's He's been going through hell. He's been doing everything he can to get out of these handcuffs with Roger Rabbit. And he starts, he finally, finally, he gets a saw and he starts sawing through the handcuffs and the table that he's like, the little chair, the desk or the table he's using starts wobbling. He's like, could you give me a hand here? So Roger Rabbit slips his hand out of the handcuff and puts his hands down on the table to steady it. He starts sawing and he looks up and he says, you mean to tell me you could have done that the whole time? Roger Rabbit slips his hand back into the handcuff and says, not any time, only when it was funny. And that to me is, I saw it moving and I was like three and I was like, got it, I'm done. Like that is, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that to me is like, that's as good a rule as, or I think of the rule, it's like, it's uh, the rules exist uh, they're there to to help us. They're there to like, if I can use the rules to like, for a good joke mm-hmm. or something like, boom, we got them and I'll use the rules like as stringently as possible to get there. But if they're in the way, fuck them. I'll just toss them out the side of the car and we'll just use them later if we need them. Uh, but they're like, they're there to inspire something. And if we can't use them for that, then fucking take a hike, rules. <laughs> uh, I love that. Uh, and again, I think what you're saying is this is this idea of like uh, 
you know, there's an element to um, uh, something that I've seen, thankfully, kind of disappearing, which is like a couple of years ago, there was just this glut online of of uh, grammar. I always get it mixed up between prescriptivist and descriptivist. But these, I think, grammar prescriptivist, people that were like, here's the correct way to speak English, right? And very quickly, people that actually study linguistics go, well, actually, every form of the language has its own unique grammar. This grammar comes from a kind of received pronunciation, upper class English. Yeah. Like, the grammar you're describing isn't divorced from a particular subset of the society that just happens to codify rules that were organic and intrinsic to them. And, you know, I've seen a lot of great sort of uh, sociological points made about like, hey, these like incredibly cut and dry grammar rules actually just kind of serve to weigh down people who have to learn effectively a second language if they didn't grow up within a group of people that used that form of grammar. That's or nice as to a hear. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, it's like I, all the time, driving me nuts when I like say something. So I was like, oh, did you mean to say this? No, I meant to say what I fucking said. Like, did you mean to be a prick to me? Like, <laughs> I think you did. Like that, like, <laughs> let me live, you know? Like you knew what I was going for. Exactly, it's right. If the point of language is for us to understand each other and you understood me, couldn't we just call this a success? Um, but there's, a, and there's an element, interesting element too of like, of, of, you know, that sort of, very prescriptivist grammar being used to catch people that are not from the club, right? Like, oh, oh you're yeah. not, right? Like, uh, um, like either you have to spend a tremendous amount of time and energy and effort to switch to this other grammar that is like maybe uh, not first, like uh, not, you don't know like the back of your hand, or if you can't do that, you're gonna get caught as like not using the correct grammar. But that idea that ling like linguistic uh, academics say of like every way of speaking all these different languages across the world has a set of rules. Like no one is not using grammar. They're just using a grammar that you're unfamiliar with, yeah. right? Uh, and I think of that too. So with that idea, and I love that Roger Rabbit, that Roger Rabbit thing was just, it was super formative to me as well. Like, oh my God. But it's one of those interesting things where when you move to something like comedy, which I think that a lot of people can have an understanding of something mm. like what is funny that moves from something in their prefrontal cortex that they could articulate, that moves into, they, they, they might deeply understand it, but maybe they don't deeply understand it in a way that they could articulate in the same way that like, baseball players deeply understand physics, but they maybe don't understand it in a way where they could tell you like the trajectory in numbers and sure. equations. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like meanwhile, no a physicist isn't like hitting a home run, you know? Right, exactly, right? So there's this interesting thing where the understanding, like I would say a baseball player deeply understands the intuitive rules and laws of motion uh, in a really profound way, in ways that a scientist doesn't really profoundly and intuitively understand them, but it doesn't mean that they necessarily articulate them. So I think what's interesting is if you look at what a D&D player that maybe really relies on the rules for, and you were like, come into the deep end, my friend, like the water's warm over here in Funville, right? Like. Um, looking at that invitation to to extend some some like benefit of the doubt to that sort of rules rules heavy player that goes, 
one of the things the rules is the rules are doing for me uh-huh. is it allows us to arbitrate conflict when we don't have agreement about what should happen next. Like if we are extremely diligent about, um, uh, you know, like weirdly, I think what that what you see in a lot of the old, in the ancient hoary tomes of D and D past, <laughs> you had these tables of people that were maybe like actively antagonistic to each other, like not getting along as friends, but just totally relying on the rules system to like arbitrate like who lives or dies? How does the story progress? Here's the monster that's in the dungeon. The dice God, are gonna determine. That is so baked into like people's perception of D&D too. And yes. like, it is, it's wild to me. Like sometimes people will ask questions of uh, or like at the show and be like, man, Branton, you must've been really pissed at Tim in that moment. It's like, what are you fucking, that's my best friend. Like, I love these people. Like pissed, I was happy that a cool thing. It's like, yeah, but your character, like your NPC seemed really pissed off about that. It's like, it's called kayfabe, motherfucker. Like, I'm... <laughs> you so need me to act like that was a big deal. Like, I'm happy for my friends. Like, come It's on. called kayfabe. I love it. I just love watching the... I just love... in I love Rue Tales of Magic so fucking much. And especially because you look at the, like, the, the, the DNA that, like, birthed it. And just the fact that we have referenced professional wrestling and Looney Tunes as the... Oh, like, yeah. It's, it's so good. But so so to to let's say that you're because I think that we have a lot of people who watch Adventuring Academy who want to play in that rules light way. But I think it's this thing of like, OK, if you are going to leave behind the formalness and the comfort of this stony architecture of the rules of D&D. &D. Mm -hmm. What is it that we can invite you to take on instead? So like to look at this, at this thing that the rules are providing, which is a way to arbitrate conflict and a way to arbitrate disagreement about the way a story should go. Mm -hmm. Looking at the style of your podcast, what is it that stands in if not rules? Like in other words, how do you and your players navigate um, getting all of these different minds on the same page about where the story should go. And if people have moments where maybe the horses are pulling the cart in two different directions, what tools do you use to get those horses going in united purpose again? Oh, I mean, I've got a few answers for this question. And like one of them's really frustrating, which is like, sorry, but it's like, we just know each other really well and they're old friends and it's like, that's the actual answer, I think, like, a lot of the time is it's just, like, I know this tone of voice from this player means, like, that no, like we're swimming out into, like, actually uncomfortable water. And so you just steer it around. It doesn't have to be a whole fucking production, you know? And it's just, yeah. like, oh, got it. Easy fix. Doesn't even need to be a thing we talk about. We can just... Because we know each other really well. Or they can tell in my voice that it's, like, okay, Branson's actually at the end of his rope here and he's going to die if we keep doing this. So we're, and they're good, you know, they're my friends. Like they're not trying to kill me on air. Like they're trying to make a fun game and advocate for their characters in a way that like a shouting goblin is not gonna be able to help them with. That's like, cause that's who I'm responsible for playing in that moment. And so like they're, uh, so they're gonna put, you know, and that's why the horse is gonna go in different directions, but we just, we know each other and we know what, you know, we can see each other. It's a little, I mean, I sometimes feel like when we're doing root tales, it's like, I'm 
uh, Kennedy in the 1960 debate. And it's like, if you can see me, I'm winning the debate. But if you're just hearing me on air, I'm losing and Nixon's winning. Because it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, I got the, if, the, if anyone watching this, it's like, you can see I have these two fucking dinner plates in the middle of my head that like convey a lot of information emotionally. But when you're just listening to a podcast sometimes, it's like, that'll just be silence. Like I'll, I might have like a meaningful eye contact exchange with like Chris or something in a moment. And like, all you're hearing when you listen to a podcast is like silence. So I understand why somebody would be like, how do you guys do that? And it's like, we just look at each other. Like we're just in the same room. We just look at each other. It's simple as that. But the other thing I think that is like probably more actionable and usable for somebody who's like, how do you do that? Is we listen to each other. It is so much of it is listening. And also I know these guys from improv. Like we are, we all have like a shared improv history. So it's like, we know improv basics. We know how to yes and each other. And we've, all of us have been improvising for so long that that's like a given at this point. Like I wouldn't, to be honest, I would be, I would, I would have a difficult time not yes anding them and like playing strictly by the rules of D and D and like letting the yes and stuff. I wouldn't, that, that would be a strain. I would not be able to do that because it's like, that's just the more natural one. But I think the big one is just like, you just, Listen to, I mean, it's like, if you really, like as for a DM perspective too, it's like you come in with an idea for something that's like gonna happen, you get excited. Ideally you get excited about it or else like, what are you fucking doing? Like, so you bring in your cool idea and then the, let's say the players like aren't biting that day or they're just like not feeling it. If you're not listening to them, that's gonna be a train wreck. That's just gonna be you shoving a cool idea on them as they like try to communicate with you that like, we don't wanna do it. this is like, my character wouldn't want to do this. This would be like a pain in the ass for, you know, like, I'm just not, I, this sounds boring to me, God forbid, like some, you know, they, I think if you're just actively engaging and allowing yourself to throw everything out and just start over fresh every single moment, like if you do that, I think you're going to have a fun, very easily handled rules like game. That's how I think. I love that. I think focusing on listening is a huge, and actually, uh, uh, normally we hold off on questions till later, but there is a question specifically that relates just to this. So I want to I want to holler the person that asked it. This one comes to us from JD. Thanks, JD. Um, Thanks. Uh, since Branson and Brennan both have creative backgrounds in improv and making comics, how do those skills transfer or not to DMing and RPGs? And I think this is exactly what Branson just raised. It's one of those funny things that like, I think that improv teachers the world over say this, improv coaches the world over, say this over and over again. And I feel like you have to hear it a thousand times before you realize that people aren't bullshitting you and it's actually true, which is that the heart and soul of good improv is listening. Uh, because I know where like improv people come from. Like I like when I was a little horrible child, I was like, <laughs> Improv is where I get to go to be clever and to get attention oh, paid yeah. to me. It's where I get and to win. Where I get to, where I get to win by being the funniest person, which I know I am because yeah. I'm very creative. Like that, like I just saw meatballs and I and I'm eight. Like that, like that makes me funny. Like that, like which is like totally valid. I understand that feeling because, buddy, I lived that feeling for years, and like. It does like it's also it's like listening is a thing that when you're a little kid gets shouted at you all the time like listen 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 and so when somebody tells me to listen the first thing I think is like fuck you like fuck you man like don't tell me to listen but it is it is exactly what you said it's like it just you just have to hear it a thousand times before you're like fine I'll try listening and it'll snap into play or for me at least it snaps into place and it's like 
damn, fuck, like that. Yeah, listening, it does it's, everything for you. It solves everything, and it. But exactly, you're exactly right, and it's it is that thing where you. It, I, I, part of why, listen, like, there's plenty of reason to be cynical about comedy largely and about institutions, yada, yada. The one thing I never got cynical about was teaching improv for how many people came to it and for, you saw people that for the first time were finding a creative release and a way to express themselves that they maybe had never had before. And what was so funny watching over and over again about improv classes was how poorly served people that came in being like, <laughs> I'm pretty funny and would just bomb. And people who maybe didn't see themselves as being like the funniest or the cleverest person in the room would just by being present and by caring about the other person in the scene with them would drop bombs and just blow people up with these reactions and responses. Because of course the funniest thing would only come about from these organic moments through which someone was actually seeing another human being. I remember like not even finding the word, like I was already doing a lot of improv by the time I was able to, it, was, it wasn't until I was watching hundreds of 101 scenes and like teaching all the time that I finally could articulate. And I was like, there is nothing impressive about making shit up. Making shit up is the easiest thing in the world to do. Even if you can make shit up very fast, mm -hmm. that's fine. I remember also I, I worked a lot with kids and I would constantly have parents being like, you know, these little kids, they're so creative and they are, my God, they're so, I mean, like, kids must be the best at improv. And it would hurt my heart to be like, no, they fucking suck. Are you kidding me? No, they can't. They don't listen to shit. They don't listen to shit. And, but that that was so funny. It was I never said that because it's always like some kid's mom. So you're like, yes, Who's paying you to honestly, you know. Paying, like, yeah, and you're like, Timothy is so wonderful. And you just watch these kids who absolutely are not yes anding each other. And but that's the thing is, is it that working with kids and then also working with these adults in these 101 classes, you do see that, like, oh, cleverness, wittiness, um, even creativity, like speed of being able to come up with something are at best fine. Like at best, yeah. like, oh, you garnished your scene with like your wittiness. Cool, that's cool. Did you do the main thing? Like the one thing that matters, which is listening to other people? Like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like a flavor. It's like a nice little flavor, but like you can't, a man cannot live on flavor alone. Like you need some protein in there. <laughs> Yeah, and that what you're talking about, which is, and, and if we define listening in a broader sense of like an earnest, honestly felt love for and do and desire to know what your collaborators mean, what not only what they are saying, but what they mean and what it is that they want and are going for, and like. It, that is, like you're saying, that is the bottom of our food pyramid. Like that, you need that more than you need anything else. And all of that wit and cleverness and creativity is is truly seasoning on top of the nutrients which are giving a shit about the internal reality and the expression of self coming from the people that you're collaborating with. Yes. I mean, like, I agree. Like a positive example of this is like on Rude Tales. For me, 
on Rue Tales. Uh, an ex excellent positive example of this is Allie Fisher, who plays Cordelia on Rue Tales. I know in I, every single time on Rue that I've just like given an exposition dump, right? A character who's like, ah, the rules of my philosophy or this town are this. The second I hear Allie say, wait, then I know, okay, we're set. The next 40 minutes, we're set <laughs> because she just actually listen to me, which is honestly more than I can say for what I've done to my own words. Like she just listens to what I said. And the whole cast does it, but there's something that like, she'll be like, wait, hold on. And just that little moment is where it's like, whoa, like clearly I know I've said something impossible or contradictory or both. And then it's like, well, and so we're set. Now the next like 30 minutes of the show is gonna be them either riffing on that or exploring that. Or now we meet the God who made that possible. Like mm -hmm. easy. It's so, so funny. And I know exactly what you mean. It's that, because again, the magic of improv and and thereby the magic of these role-playing games, because I think that what, what people are getting at and why I think people can look at Rude Tales and kind of be like amazed at like, but, but, but if you throw the rules out or, or if you like, if you structure things in this way, where are the rails that the story moves on? Where are the things? And I think what Rude Tales does so expertly is it shows you like, hey, the only thing that ever really mattered to begin with was the spirit of the law. Like, yes, there's, you know what I mean? It's like, because, because we all, it's so funny because when people rely if, in that classic dichotomy of what matters more, the word of the law or the spirit of the law, right? The letter of the law or the spirit of the law. Um, we all know, you don't have to read that much news to see how much advantage can be taken in a society that only values the letter of the law, right? I, I think back, talking about like like influences from pop culture, I think back, back to that line from uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where Jimmy Stewart goes like, I wouldn't give you two cents for all your fancy rules. I'm gonna butcher the quote right now, but he says, I wouldn't give you two cents for all your fancy rules if they didn't have a little bit of plain, ordinary, everyday kindness behind them, right? That oh, like, yeah. which is, first of all, it makes you wanna weep. But second of all, I think gets to the point of something, which is that, it is really hard to find a formal solution for a group of people who don't care about each other's well-being, who are not listening to each other. Yes, yeah. There's it's like all the rules in the world, they can't, they're no, they just don't do it. They don't have the same, like, I can't, like, God, if you don't like each other, what are you doing? Why are you this Go play chess with a computer. Like, it's fine. <laughs> Find right. your difficulty setting and your fought your yo Yeah, exactly. I truly, but it, there is that thing where and, and again, like to me, listening is the greatest act of like, in this case, love for your friends, like compassion at the table and 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 that everyday kindness, it is that thing where rules can help rule like formalizing and making formal structures around things can help because they they can exist as agreements we've made we go okay we've said that this is one of the ways that we're going to take care of each other that's great but again like that is the vessel holding the substance which is this desire for us all to thrive together and tell a story that we love and care about yes and if that soul if that spirit is not present there you're going to have a really hard time kind of no matter what formal structure you've set up around it like if that that spirit needs to be the priority that like everyone being 
what we what we say a lot like in online discourse a lot like of being in good faith like are we in yes. good faith in this agreement with each other are we in good faith moving forward and what shows like root tales do is i think show you that if you focus deeply on that spirit and that's a lot of what improv rules are about is like hey this might seem kind of highly informal like we're never going to have a script but it by focusing on these guidelines of letting that inner spirit of existing in good faith flourish, we actually see that you can cut out the middleman a lot and move forward into something really exciting by just having honed in on that spirit of the law there, right? Um, yeah. And I don't wanna be the, the, I don't like rules guy. Like I like the rules fine, you know what I mean? Like there's, the, the way I think of the rules on like Rude Tales is the way that like uh, Grandpa Simpson is used on The Simpsons where it's like, if he's in the scene, doing something with it like he's never just like there in the seat you know what i mean like if, yes. if grandpa has shown up at the house they're going to he's gonna make a joke about an onion on his belt or something like if we are playing with a rule on root tales like there's a reason i never would just arbitrate i would never dare to just arbitrarily use a rule I, my yeah. god could you imagine <laughs> uh but it's what i love too is there there is an element of um purposefulness like obviously i think that what is very cool about a group of incredibly advanced improvisers like the cast of root tales looking at these rule systems is improvisers do have a kind of ruthless efficiency like we're only going to be in this scene for x amount of minutes we're going to move through it we're going to try to find a relationship find a game move forward and have as much fun as we can like for for all of their like informality improvisers kind of do have a, a ruthlessness of like, let's go, like oh, let, yeah. whatever works, like let's move. And it's um, like we're all the predators, you know, and it's like you're looking for the, the red zone on like the scene, <laughs> you go for that and then move on. Yes, exactly. And so what's very cool is to watch how rules get incorporated with that purposefulness of like, mm. uh, the, the philosophy of like every rule is a toy. Like this has been yes, incorporated, yeah. this has been incorporated because it's fun. Um, uh, is I think really, really delightful. Um, uh, looking at that, like uh, the, the sort of, I, and again, I love coming back to that idea of like listening, listening as like how we honor each other and listening is also being like the core of what we're trying to do here. Because again, it's, it's like, you are an incredibly like your, like Cordelia, the world of Cordelia is so, larger than life and it's so zany and the world building is so fantastical it's 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 fully technicolor world but i love what you're talking about because i think it's the same thing that every dm is waiting for which is as i am unfolding this fantasy world in front of you i'm wanting someone to go wait what was that because it's mm -hmm. kind of it's that moment of like oh a, in kind of the toy story mentality of like you know, a toy doesn't really come to life unless it's played with. And if that thing is a DM of like, yeah, I can make up all this crazy stuff, but unless you fall in love with it, it's not ever really gonna come to life. Um, and that is at the core of what listening is about. It's like, oh, yes, the wacky zany choice gets made, but when the other person notices it and calls it out and mm -hmm. brings it into the spotlight, that's the moment where the magic really happens, which is at the core why listening is that most important part of improv. Um, Oh, great deep improv. I feel like I feel like we've been wanting this conversation for so long because it feels like the, the exact deep dive into improv that we've been wanting for a long, long time. Oh, um, I'm glad to help. <laughs> um, it's so look for fun. the helpers, you know. <laughs> look for the helpers, oh, Mr. Rogers. Um, uh, uh, so um, 
I also say though, just to fully answer this question here as well, because we talked oh, yeah, a lot about. Question. Sorry. No, it's great. We I think we've d done a deep, deep dive into specifically how the skills transfer. Um, uh, and again, I think for people at home, just a great piece of advice, which is that like. I am a big fan of formal agreements, both in terms of rules and in terms of codifying things to be like, hey, especially if you're using like safety mechanics at your table, like lines and veils, those things are incredibly, incredibly important. Um, so I am a, a perhaps maybe even on the scale of things, a bigger rules head than most. I do kind of love, love rules in that way. But I think that what is very emblematic about all of this is that n there are no amount of rules that will keep you safe if un if the deeper underneath spiritual truth of liking each other and wanting to have that good faith support of each other like that needs to be worked on and i think what's funny about improv training as well is people think that 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 kind of like spirit is either there or not and what improv has kind of taught me is like no that is something that is worked on like the the spirit like that a sense of good faith and that sense of wanting what is good and listening to and supporting each other, that is absolutely a skill. Just because it's kind of like ethereal and like of the heart doesn't make it not real. It's incredibly real. And there's like a lot of oh, practice yeah. you can do to like hone that. It's, um, it is a muscle. It's just like any other thing. It's like if you work it out, it gets stronger. And if not, it atrophy. It's not like the ghost of Dell, like whispering the, you know, into <laughs> your ear. Like it's not, it's just, Try, you know, do some reps. Just do some reps just listening to somebody and just do a few a day. If you get tired, you can go back to not listening to people. And it's you'll get better at it. Yeah, it's very funny. All all those, yeah, the, all of those ephemeral emotional things. It's so funny. We live in a society that I feel like constantly wants to devalue intuition. It wants to devalue insight. It wants to devalue these kind of emotional aspects to things. And it's so funny because again, going back to the, the roots of improv and RPGs, I remember teaching classes with people and saying stuff to people in a one-on-one, like looking at another adult and pausing a scene and being like, hey, so-and-so, like, like, hey, Rob, I need you to understand. Um, you, it's very clear that you don't care at all about what your scene partner is saying. <laughs> like you haven't reacted to anything they've done and having uh, an adult look at you like a deer in a headlight, like what? And being like, yeah, man, it seems like you don't care about other people. Do you know that about you? <laughs> and, and, watching, and watching them just be like, why? And be like, well, that other, your scene partner said that they, that their character was hit by a car and you said that you needed to make a phone call because uh, your butt was too big. And I mean, you look, just, you make that call for sure. You gotta take care of that butt, but like. Do you see how like you took a thing you thought was funny and completely ran over your scene partner and didn't say anything in response to them and, and how that's, and you watch a person be like, do I not listen to people? It's like a really intense, profound thing. So it's like, it, it doesn't even, like people that are playing games at home, like check in with yourself because it might, you don't, you don't need to be a villain in order to not be listening to people. People might be like, well, I'm a good person. So I'm, sh I'm sure because I'm a good person that I'm listening to people and always honoring their choices. No, it, it's a muscle. Like you might, yeah. you check in, you might need to be, uh, have practice. Well, also that. the moral dimension to, to listening to like, Plenty of villains listen to like Hannibal Lecter is listening to Clarice. That's like you can still be. That doesn't make you like a good person. Just like, you're not gone if you've listened to somebody. Yeah, that's so funny. I love the idea of uh, of Hannibal Lecter, especially what would the yeah. non. Now I'm thinking of the non-listening Hannibal, like Clarice being like Doctor Lecter, and Doctor Lecter's like, I want to eat people. Um, <laughs> 
Like, no, listen. Um, I don't like it in here. I don't like it in this cage. Um, uh, cool. Um, uh, I think we're going. Oh, so I wanted to, to go to the other half of the question, which was talking about comics work, um, which yeah. is oh, which is very cool. Uh, uh, so. Um, in terms of shaping Cordelia, because I think as a DM, you're one of the few people who's like doing a lot of this preparatory work before mm -hmm. sessions. And obviously you have a tremendous prolific, uh, you actually, I believe also there's a, a um, uh, but, 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 uh, has, you have a comics collection called Hell Was Full. Uh, I had it right behind me here. Hell Was Full from Oni Press available uh, wherever books are sold. Uh, you know, don't use Amazon, but anything else is fine with me. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, well, so I want to talk about that a little bit as well, because obviously uh, comics work uh, uh, is that is very similar to what DMs do in terms of like, you're going to sit down for a second, do this preparation. It can be a little bit like isolated and lonely, like you're working and doing this stuff, but yeah. it is in itself creative work. Um, uh, uh, I see a big connection between the sensibility of your comics and the inherent games and comedic life within Cordelia. Um, uh, and also kind of the general philosophies, I feel like. Do you see that kind of translation coming over and how much of your comics brain is lighting up when you're doing DM prep work for uh, Rude Tales? That's a good question that is, to be honest, is a little difficult to answer because I've never not been me. You know, it's like a, a tough time. There's no like control group of like, I can just be another guy for a few days and see <laughs> how that feels. Like it's, so I think it's probably pretty connected. I mean, for me, it's like, I, I love making comics and I, I think of them most as like event. It's basically, it's like, ah, I got this idea. I should just like put this down somewhere or like, that's the same thing. It's like, it's a muscle or it's like, I'm just going to work on comics for a while. And in doing that, that will make me better just because how could you not get better at something you're like doing and paying attention to while you're doing. But it is, I mean, it's lonely. I mean, I'm a social creature. Like it's lonely work doing comics. I under, I mean, the Charles Schultz quote of like, don't, somebody was like, how should I get into comics? He was like, don't, it'll break your heart. Like it's, <laughs> I feel, as a sad guy, but like, I feel that though of like, but man, it's a lot of hours of just like sitting by yourself and like drawing. And you know, what's nice about that. And what I think it, that ties into me of like, when I was doing live performing too, of that feeling of like, well, this one's just for me. This is, you know, when you're doing, spending that much time by yourself, I'd be curious to hear what your feeling on it is. But like, for me, it's like, I'm spending all this time by myself making a comic. Like, God, if I don't like the comic, like, what's the fucking point? Like, so it, it makes me a little bit better, at, especially like when I was early on performing. I was like, I, you know, when I was like maybe 20 and I was first starting off as a little bit of like turning to the audience of like, you like that? Like, whatever, it'll make you smile. Like that kind of like, like dying old vaudeville comedian energy. Of, like, I'll slip on whatever you need. Like <laughs> that. You know, which I think is like weak, but like that, like, uh, so for me, comics is like a, a, a sort of a way to like flex the muscle of like, yeah, but what do I like? What is like, what makes me laugh and smile? Because I think that's always going to be the most appealing thing. Like to me, my favorite performers are the ones that like, don't give a shit if I'm enjoying myself or not. And like, I mean, maybe they, I'm sure they prefer I did because money gets involved, but like, you know, for the most part, it's like, if I'm happy or unhappy, they don't really care. And like, that to me is like, oh, now I'm invited to come play with them. And that's how I think of comics. And like, so when I'm doing prep work for, uh, for Rude Tales, it is a little bit of that, like, okay, what would make me laugh? Like, what would I love to see in a world? Or what, I mean, I think when it's at its best, it's like, what is going to break Carly? Like, what is going <laughs> to make her 
laugh until she cries. And if I can think of that, and I, I feel a pretty good track record with it, like then that's for sure going into like Jerry Mentalgen to me was like that was like the rat who needed to be potty trained. That to me was like I was walking down the street and I was like, you know what would fucking wreck Carly's shit? And then I was like that this guy and I put him in the show and it did. And like that's why it's because it's like a little gift for the player because like. For me, what's very frustrating about comics and why I don't do them more, honestly, is like it's isolating and it's lonely. And so it's I mean, it's nice. It's nice to have a little bit of a balance where it's like I spend, you know, a few hours alone and then that gets me really excited to share something with people. And then it just creates a sort of loop. I think that there's something within that that makes that, that I definitely identify with of like when you are doing DM prep work even though it is as lonesome as crafting like comics or it's as lonesome as sort of any kind of writing work, you have the faces of the people that you are mm -hmm. trying. I don't know. It's like being a toy maker. If you know the children that you're making the toys, it's like, yeah, like I, like, I, like it's like, Oh, this, like, I know that, that this could bring joy to this person. I know that the, the way their laugh sounds, I know the way they'll look if something incredible happens and they're amazed. Like, um, and weirdly, it's a way of like tricking your brain into doing at times hard work because oh, you're yeah. getting that little, that little, like, uh, anticipatory serotonin, that little bit of like, oh, I actually can envision. And I'm very much the same way where even though like, obviously the, 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 like, we are able to do this show because of the incredible support of our fans who are the coolest, but just seeing like the creativity and awesomeness in our fan community is incredible. But I do feel like in a weird way, I would be doing a disservice to the fans of the show if I was like checking in with them, like, do you like yeah. this? You know, like, please, like, like, you know, we put a button in the in the screen, whereas we can get like a focus group of like watching the lion rise and fall as we do stuff because they're because they're not there to I don't think most people that consume media are there to be catered to. And I think that when people can sense that that's happening, they they realize the uh, saccharine falseness of what they're looking at and go like, oh, this has become this has become like a weird commercial transaction. Like people that rate mm -hmm. my enjoyment of things are like giant tech corporations. Fuck this, I'm out, right? Like, yeah. Um, as opposed to people going like, look, we've come here to to be a part of this table. And this table is is like, uh, is served best if Brennan is serving Lou, Siobhan, Ali, Murph, Emily, and Zach. Like that's that's what we are here to see. So I think that like honoring your players and keeping that relationship kind of as like sacred as possible. And I think you see a lot of D&D actual plays talk about that and being like, we try to balance our creating something that will be meaningful for our audience with preserving the integrity of this game, which does feel like a little family in its own way. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I, I, I would rather, as a fan, I mean, I can't speak for any other fan, but I know for myself, I would rather be a little pissed at a thing I like because they didn't do the thing I wanted them to do than to get exact. I remember when, I probably shouldn't talk shit about this movie, but like, I so I remember seeing uh, Zombieland in theaters when I was, uh, let's say 10. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, I just remember thinking like, this feels like they just hit a fucking checklist of everything that like, guys of my like you know what i mean like my like bracket Demo, like my economic yeah. breakdown and like race and age and everything it's like i just i i don't did you want to do this or did you want me to want that like i don't know i felt very like 
uh, taken for a ride there. Uh, f- fully. And I also can, I think what's great about that, that point too, is when I think about the works of art that have meant the most to me, all of them have things in them that deeply bother me. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, uh, and it's very funny, but I think that you, th- when you try to find, like, there is that good piece of artistic advice. And for people that are watching this too, uh, that are like trying to make their own games, like, um, attempting to please everybody is a great way to please nobody, right? Like, yes, yeah. you know, and I think that's very, very true that, that at a certain point you do have to just follow your artistic heart uh, in creating something that resonates with you and hopefully resonates with your players. Um, uh, because that, at the end of the day, that's the only way that you'll be assured to have integrity. Um, love that. Uh, we're gonna, we, we are flying along. We gotta jump into some of these ding dang questions. Um, let's do it, hit me. Let's do it. This first one comes from Callum. Thanks, Callum. How do you introduce a recurring villain and ensure that they don't die in the yeah. first encounter whilst not making them so overpowered that you risk TPKing your PCs? Uh, this is a great question. And I feel like this is, this is there are mechanical elements to this question and there's also narrative elements to this question. Um, uh, there have been some uh, uh, wonderful villains in the world of Cordelia uh, uh, that we have introduced. Oh, thank thus you. Far. Uh, 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 some of whom have gotten their own theme songs uh, masterfully produced. Um, uh, thank you. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Written by Tim Platt, produced by uh, uh, Ben Kling, sung by Rachel Winitsky. Beautiful. Um uh, Branson, uh, what are your what are your thoughts when you introduce? Because this gets into an interesting thing, especially when you're talking about being governed by the rule of cool, or you're talking about being governed by a more Looney Tunes kind of phys- uh, laws of physics in the world. Um, it, the idea of villains is very interesting because this gets us into a thing that is, I think, hard for improv to navigate at times, mm-hmm. where you get into the world of, I don't give my players what they want if I'm always giving them what they want. Because I think we've all been in situations where, which is hard, it's, I think those are, that, yeah. that, that's where you're pushing improv to its breaking point sometimes because you get to a world where you're like, because I suddenly felt this as a PC when I'm playing of like, what do I want? I want to kill the villain the first time they show their fucking head. The first yeah. time they show up, I yeah, want to fucking next. Next, right? But I understand that for story reasons that can't happen. So how do you handle in Cordelia the introduction of villains? How do you introduce their level of power or their level of scariness, both mechanically and narratively? This is a great question that like, to be honest, I don't know really. I mean, like, I feel it out each time, depending on what each, it's like, I think of the villain first in terms of like, well, who is this guy? What is they? What do they want? Like, how do they move? And like, maybe they're, maybe there's somebody who like, if they were to attack them, they'd die, but that would be a problem because they're connected or like, you know, they have powerful friends who you haven't met yet, but like, trust me, they're out there. I haven't built them yet, but like, they, they'll find you in, uh, give me 24 <laughs> hours and they'll find you. Like that, like, or, it's like a, a I don't know. I, it's like I'm promoting the show. I also don't want to spoil stuff on the show, but like uh, uh, Kevin, the demon, like that, like a creature like Kevin who's like fucking overpowered. It's like too overpowered. And like Kevin, honestly, I think Kevin only exists on the show because I'm a pretty unsalted DM and I didn't know to not put a demon that can like 
you're never gonna fucking be able to kill in your first encounter. Like, it didn't occur to me. I like did that episode and I was like, great job. And then later I was like on Reddit, like, how do you DM? And somebody was like, like people are just sort of talking about it as like a give a given that you wouldn't do that. And I was like, oh, huh. Well, it's too late. It's already out in the air. So like, you know, I, I don't know what to do now. But like, it's, I think it would just, it's like. I think the way to really do it is like, think about your players, think about your characters. What do you want out of them? And whatever it takes to get that out of them is like, that's how you build the, or that's how I try to approach it at least. It's like, that's how I try to build the encounter. Or like, I, uh, I mean, a great is that we had one character show up who like, this is pretty early in the run. He like, he wanted something from, he was like, ah, you, you killed him my spiders. Like now we got to go do this thing. And like, they just weren't biting. They just didn't fucking care about this guy. And like, I've listened to the episode. I don't blame him. It's fine. Like, uh, <laughs> as a player, I don't know that I would have cared about this guy. But like, at the time, I was like, here he, like, the, like, this NPC is gonna, they're gonna write books about this guy. And they didn't fucking care at all. And they ran away from him. And I was like, you know what? That's a pretty clear sign that this guy is not like the arc villain or like introduction to this storyline that I thought he might be. It's like, I don't, I mean, sometimes my feeling is like, if they really want to kill that villain and you are reading them correctly and it's like, nah, this isn't like a, a, a like a petulant, like I want to win. This is like, I really want to do this and you want to give it to him, let him die. Let him die. There's maybe there's something else out there. Maybe there's a haunted tree. I don't fucking know what your world's like. <laughs> Maybe there's a haunted tree. But it's well, I, I think what you're hitting on here too is something that I think DMs should go to more often, which is um, you, when you're the DM, you can never really lose because your PCs have six characters, right? If, you're, if you have six people at the table, they have six characters. You have the whole world. So if your dude gets axed, oh no, where am I gonna find another bad guy? Oh, here, literally right here, right? Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is that idea of like, that is a very improviser mentality of there are no failures that are permanent. If I, if I, if my villain face plants, he pulls a, he somersaults and he's standing up again somewhere else. Like there is no moment, Willy Wonka, Willy Wonka style, like whoop, and back up again, right? Um, so I love that mentality of like, always take the L as the DM because your resources are infinite, right? Like yeah. your resources are infinite. So you should take as many L's as your players wanna dish out. Now, what I will say is this, and I think this gets to something. Now, now the, there is a mechanics question here of like, interest referring villain ensure that they don't die in the first encounter while it's not making them so overpowered that you risk TPKing your, piece, your PCs. Look, challenge rating is busted to hell. It doesn't work. There are lower challenge rating encounters that will absolutely mop your PCs up. Mm -hmm. uh, I have thrown like CR 23 encounters at eighth level characters and had nobody even drop and they win, right? Like CR is just not a great system for calculating that stuff. What I would say is this, if you wanna have a battle encounter with your villain and the other PCs, that doesn't end in either side losing, but it's a like, we'll meet again, Batman! Like where it's a draw and they, you know, run off. What you need to do is this. Your villain, when they start getting their ass kicked, has a foolproof way to escape. A teleportation, uh -huh. a rune of escape, 
hot air like, balloon hot air balloon yeah rope ladder away mm-hmm. and you'd better have something in mind because pcs don't like to lose so if that villain goes like rope you can like you can narrate your villain grabbing the rope ladder and being like we'll meet again What's going to happen after that is you're going to get six PCs saying, I shoot my grappling hook at the yes. rope ladder. I cut the <laughs> rope ladder down. I'm going to cast jump on myself and jump on. So get ready for, for if you don't want that to work, you better have something. You better narrate it correctly. It better be the villain grabs the rope ladder, shoots 12 miles away, and through a bullhorn says, we'll meet again. Batman. I'm God. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just being real with you, because your PC, unless you make it clear, your PCs will take the shot. Because their PCs... They always take the fucking shot. Um, uh, uh, oh, you know what else? Yes. We do this a lot is uh, creative problem solving. It doesn't have to be violent. Yeah. Let them, if they come up with the creative, so I do this all the time on Rude Tales. If they come up with a solution that I didn't see coming, which happens constantly because I'm A, not God, and two, an idiot on top of that. Like there's like, you, they're going to surprise you. Let them, reward them when they're like, aha, I like, I trigger this memory of his that like, you know, would like reduces him to tears. It's like, start crying, man. Like let him, you know, like let them try something else that's not combat. Yes, uh, th- I think there's a lot of ways to move through that. Finding those creative solutions, I think makes a ton, a ton of sense. And I think that you, to to extend, so, so the mechanics are hard, right? Like your pieces sure. if they are in combat will do combat stuff they will try things to, to stop them um if you want to scare your pcs away make it undeniable in other words don't have a situation like like if you want your pcs to run narrate that shit so it is undeniable and your pcs will get the hint if you just have a bad guy show up piss them off and start fighting they will they will all drop where they leave that fight but if you go like the earth shakes, the vent yeah. erupts in green gas. A new god of evil is born as hundreds of minions crawl from the earth. You sense a moment as they are birthed from their horrible elder god sacks of bilious green slime <laughs> that Beautiful. they look around and say, where are the people who botched the ritual? Where are they? And you see one shadow near you where you could slip away. Your PCs will take that bait. But if it is any less subtle than that, or any more subtle than that, I should say, if it's any more subtle than that, they are probably going to roll initiative. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) That is, that's That's off the dome. That's great. That's But, you know, like, that's what PCs do. They want to fight shit. So unless you make it like, I'm going to kill your ass if you try and fight now, unless you make it that clear, they're probably going to try to fight. You know um, what helps is if you uh, just alter your energy. If you have, like, an, a type of energy you defer to. Yes. Like, if you are, let's say you're me and you're, like, a fucking motor mouth. Like, if you just, like, slow down a little bit and just say, like, okay, so... I do that, and all the players are like, "All right, we're getting the fuck out of here. You're throwing. You're gonna. You're about to cheat. Like we're done. Like yeah, you're about to cheat. I love that. That's so well put. And I think what you're going, what we're harkening back to again is listening, right? Because it's about how you communicate. Because again, yes, there is a world of fiction that is true to the characters, but, and I'm not advocating for metagaming here. There is communication that happens player to player. And when you as the dungeon master, actually it's not even metagaming now that I think about it. When you as a, as a, as a DM go to that place where you sing a new different tone and go like, 
the shadows elongate. Darkness falls upon the land. People, listen to your tone, because the truth is all of this is narrated through spoken language, right? And what that limits is things that the characters in real life would be feeling. Like, think about when you feel a feeling of dread in real life. It's never because of some words that got said. It's because you clock a vibe that's in the room. Mm -hmm. Now, we have a limitation because we're at a table talking to each other. But like Branson just said, you can't help create the feeling of dread through your tone, the pace of your speech, the mood you are in, even what octave you're speaking in, and use that to replace what would actually be in your fictional world, which is that feeling of dread, right? Your characters would know to run because of things that are largely unspoken. Their fight or flight would trigger, but your players can't tap into their character's fight or flight response that viscerally unless you use those tricks tricks like tone and pacing and everything else like that. Um, I also wanted to say too that like, the one word of caution I'll put here, just to get, even with all those tricks that you can take away from this, this is such a good question. I actually love this question. This is so smart. And I feel like this is this is ground we like have not covered yet as well. Mm -hmm. There's a great thing I learned about um, how they shot the Batman versus Bane fight in the third in Batman, Batman Rises or whatever. This, this, this and believe me, I'll, I'm gonna tie it back. I'm gonna tie it back, baby. We're gonna we're Where's gonna get... he going? <laughs> Where's he going with this? Um, he's out of his fucking mind. <laughs> he's off the rails, baby. Um which is the way they shot that, uh, if you look at the, there's a lot of scenes where they're out in front of like Gotham Wall Street, it's Batman versus Bane, all of Bane's, you know, League of Shadows kind of terrorist people are like fist fighting cops. You know, how how cops yeah. and terrorists love to fight with their fists in broad daylight in the snow. Oh, it's Just always a fair of, fight. Oh, it's always yeah, a super yeah, yeah. fair fight. Um, uh, and, um, that the coverage for that it's like so hard to follow the fight everything's in super close up and what i read about it was the reason they edited it that way is that anytime they went to a wide shot it became a goddamn farce like anytime they went oh, to the really? wide yeah, because there would be, like, like, they didn't do fight choreography for this, like, 200 extras that were there. So you'd end up with one of Bane's League of Shadows people, like, whipping around from, like, the only two pieces of fight choreography he had. And suddenly he's holding an AK-47 right behind Batman, who's just talking. And there's this moment oh, wow. where it would just be like, uh, okay, don't, don't... <laughs> Don't shoot Batman for some reason. And I love that piece of trivia because it, it really goes to show like, oh yeah, that don't make no goddamn sense. Like why would, like, yeah, Batman's having this climactic encounter with Bane and they're like trading barbs. And if you move the camera out a little bit, you'll see a League of Shadows guy with this huge metal pipe not hitting Batman over the back of the head. Just waiting. Just just politely waiting. Yeah. Um, in D&D, you don't have cool editors to cover up that fuck up. So, so the thing that this person's asking in their question that's really, really correct is you have to put thought into tropes that are always, like in other words, nothing like DMing has made me realize which tropes are bullshit. The biggest trope that's bullshit is if your heroes don't have a reason to listen to that villain's monologue, that villain's not getting that monologue oh, out, baby. Yeah. <laughs> It's fucking over, man. They're gonna run away, they're gonna slit his throat. That's probably one of the two things. One of those two things, right? Like, if you have someone come out and be like, well, 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 it seems the heroes of Gelgador, unless they're, you have thought of a reason why they listen, that 
fucking villain is getting drop kicked right in the oh, ass yeah. immediately, right? Like, we're not uh, so different, you and like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that, but what you want to let that do is inform your decision making with your villain. Um, if you want your heroes to get to know your villain, you need to think of really practical reasons that they would get to know them. Either the villain has to be someone that the heroes are working with. Maybe they don't consider them a villain yet. Maybe there's an element of betrayal here, or maybe there's something in it for them. Um, uh, or the villain has something that is really spelled out about why the PCs are bothering to hear them. Like there's a piece of information they need, or there's something else. But even if you do that, know that PCs are the most murderous goblins on the planet like if your pcs if it's like okay well they need a piece of information from the villain your pc is like i have speak with dead let's slit his throat and ask his corpse like they will do that yeah every time um it's and i gotta say and it's like that i see that i know you're not doing it but i see that presented all the time as like these players like they're gonna try to pull one it's like i'm brer fox and they're brer rabbit it's like no these are like i'm helping them tell this story so it's like part of me is like yeah, they're playing smart guys, you know? Like, so sometimes they're just gonna be like, yeah, I kill him. And it's like, you know what? That's on me. Fair. He walked into it. <laughs> but that's the thing too, is all of the frustration in that Br'er Fox, Br'er Rabbit relationship is just that in the original Br'er Rabbit stories, there's not six Br'er Rabbits all probably <laughs> smarter than you working together. So the frustration of the Fox's part just comes from like, I, saw this trope in a movie and never uh -huh. thought about why it wouldn't work and now I have egg on my face. And also I'm not actually trying to hurt you, I'm trying to help you tell a story. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, oh, I love that question so much. Um, okay. Uh, um, uh, awesome. Uh, this next question comes just from Sam. Thanks, Sam. Um, I just started DMing my first campaign a few weeks ago. Yesterday, I had a 3.5 hour session planned that wound up being cut short because my players plowed through all of the encounters much more quickly than I thought they would. Should I be preparing more scenes and encounters? How do you handle situations where players are moving through the story more quickly than you anticipated? Uh, yeah, Branson, how much of a buffer do you like to have on your like pre-planned stuff? I... Gotta say, I, I appreciate this question. And I think it's a good question, and it is one I haven't DM'd a ton, and I've really only DM'd for the Root Tales group and a, a, a few friends at home. I mean, I DM'd like four times before I was like, "All right, time to make some money," and like started a podcast. You know, like, <laughs> I'm proud of the show. I am. I wouldn't say that if I like thought the show sucked. Like, I'm very proud of the show, but it was like. I was like, oh yeah, fucking, I wanna, I want people to hear this. I'm very proud of like what we're doing, but like, boy, have I never had that problem. I've always had the opposite where it's like, all right, I have two things I need you guys to do. And it's like hour, two and a half. And it's like, how are we looking on that first one? Like, <laughs> so I don't, I mean, the buffer I have is like, I try, I mean, Chris, uh, uh, one time he, he put it as like plan wide, don't plan deep. Like, have a lot of options of things that could happen. And I find that very helpful. And like a lot of our, my favorite episodes are the ones where I really kept that at the front of my brain while I was preparing for it. Yes. But I, it's, yeah, it's like, if you think of it like a real railroad style apartment where it's like, they go to this room and then this room and then this room, like it's like that only can go so far and they might be super fast. So I would just say like, prepare like 
seven. I'm that's right out of my ass, but like seven things or three things that don't go in any specific order that can be moved around or just have a guy that has like a need and so you know and that that I think that'll let the world be a little bit more open-ended that would be my advice but I don't know if it's good to be honest no I dig that well I think plan wide and not plan deep makes a ton of sense and I also actually do empathize with that problem as well of like hey don't plan too much because they're not getting to it baby like we're gonna have some goofs uh that are gonna take up some of that time it's like they're having fun you know it's like I'm not mad it's like yeah much better this way we're succeeding exactly but the the um, what I love there too, there it's hard to find the language for this because I'm gonna I'm gonna stumble through this and try to find the language for this because I'm gonna I'm going to try to answer this question with things that I'm sure will just beg more questions, which is frustrating. But like to to go with what you're saying, I know in my head when I'm thinking about them which plans are fragile and which plans are robust when I'm talking about mm. planning for something. I wish that I could articulate what the DNA of those things are and communicate to people watching this show. But I think start to measure in your own head. And if I can use examples, right? Um, putting prep time into a character will always be better than putting prep time into an event because a character will have more utility over time, right? Putting, mm-hmm. uh, putting prep time into a villain's motives and resources will always yield more results in the long run than a specific contraption or a thing. Like, I guess the, the rule I'm kind of finding here is like, think about work that exists in your campaign over stretches of time and you'll almost always be better off because you'll be able to improvise in the moment. Like planning moments is so fragile because if any of the things that are needed for that moment you envision mm-hmm. in your head to go off goes wrong, suddenly where you're left. It's your railroad apartment analogy, right? Like they're gonna go into this room and do this thing and have this interaction which leads to that rather than being like, here is a setting, the setting has this game to it. It has these themes in it. Here's one or two buildings, here's a couple of characters, but also here's just the tuning fork of what the vibe of this whole thing is like. Oh yeah. You know, and as they go into it, uh, like I, I, I do think there's almost an advi- a bit of advice here about in your planning, look for things that are gonna have longevity to them and things that are robust. If I have to choose between knowing a specific villain's plans or knowing who that villain knows and what the resources are that they rely on the most and then improvise the actual execution of the plan, that second one is always gonna go down better, I think. You're you're gonna be more flexible. You're gonna have Mm -hmm. more cards up your sleeve over the long run. Um, So in terms of like running out of material, my guess would be Um, switch up where your preparation work is going to towards things that, um, like again, like, okay, you ran out of material. Were you planning a dungeon with a set number of rooms that can be solved in either a lot or a little bit of time versus going, uh, you get to the city. The city has a problem of these monsters besetting it. Yeah. Like, Like there's monsters besetting the city. And now... If they solve a bunch of monster problems, like, like if they solve a bunch of monster problems really quickly, was that all the monsters? 
does it have to have been all the monsters? Yeah. If it's only 3 p.m., could there be one more monster that no one had seen yet behind a secret room that maybe yeah. no one... You know, like, it's like, well, where are those monsters even coming from now? Like, there's just more to play with. That. God, it's so fucking funny, by the way, that this is you stumbling through that answer. <laughs> with, like, this, it feels, it's like, all right, we're answering your linguistics questions. We got Noam Chomsky and Steve-O here. Like, it's fucking <laughs> beautifully put. That's very kind. I don't think that you would be Steve-O in this scenario. Although, Steve-O also- I wouldn't mind also, being the Steve-O. You know, Steve-O fucking slaps. Yeah, he's, he's a good yeah. guy. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, incredible. Um, so so fun. Uh, I do. I really do love that question, though. Um, I think we have time. We have time for a couple more, don't we? Um, uh, um. So, uh, uh, this one comes from, um, sh- this one comes from Sean Riley. Ooh, this is a lovely one. This feels a very good, very good one for this episode specifically. As a DM, how do I feel invested in my improvisations? How do I escape the sense that I'm just making stuff up and thus it doesn't matter? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, Sean. Um, I got into a argument with uh, your friend and mine, Mr. Taylor Moore, who is the- uh, uh, who, Producer of Rude Tales. Producer of Rude Tales, um, because I played D&D with Taylor for a little bit. Taylor's an incredible player, by the way. Awesome PC. Uh, love Taylor to death. He rules. Um, he absolutely rules. We love Taylor. We love we love Taylor. Um, uh, but uh, Taylor was, when we first started playing D&D, Taylor was like, I could see that the magic just took hold of him. He was so enamored of it. And he would ask oh, me, dude, yeah. He's so like immersed in it. So immersed, he loves it. And he would ask me afterwards, um, uh, he would ask me afterwards, like, like, how did, like, was that planned? Did you plan that? Was that part of the plan? And eventually I had to kind of cop to it because my style as a DM is very, I, I lean on improvisation and I encourage people that are learning how to play of like, um, uh, this is kind of I don't I don't know that I mean this 100% but there is a little part of me that goes like you will never be so good at planning that you never have to improvise but you might get so good at improving that you never have to plan so I feel that strong <laughs> um uh in other words like I just see more returns in my improvisation i just i i see that yielding more results at the actual table well, because uh, it's coming from you listening to the players you know exactly. it's like it's all about listening this is listening it's listening baby um but so i told taylor I, and what i said to him is and i thought i was being very profound at the moment and i went i went what is the difference in the authorial integrity of something i made up at the table in response to a question you asked or something I made up on my couch eating Oreos yesterday. Like mm-hmm. what is so much more valid? People put this magical importance on prep work as though because because I came up with it in my underwear at my computer at one o'clock in the morning the night before, now it has this air of authority and integrity to it. Why? Based on what? Uh, uh, and I said, I said, I think something that I make up at the table has just as much integrity and validity as something that I made up a week or a month prior. And Taylor looked at me in my eyes and said, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, was, dude, no, he'll call you on that, man. <laughs> he was like, the stuff you made up ahead of time is, it matters more. And I was like, I just think you're wrong. Um, 
but so I hear that uh, Sean's question here. How how do you, for me I I some of my favorite pieces of world building, some of my favorite pieces of lore, some of my favorite character moves and plot elements were fully imagined in the moment I was saying them at the table. So to me, the only thing I can say is like, you know, in response to this question, um, is that I think I think Sh Sean should and must feel invested in those improvisations. Uh, do you feel the same way? But and, and then I'm also kind of trying to stumble through and think of like how, if you don't value those, how can you come to value them? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the actual answer is like, it's complicated and like NPC by NPC or invention by invention, like it shifts and it changes. And like, to me, that's how I know I'm paying attention to what I'm doing. And I'm actually invested in it is that like, I'll throw out something and be like, you know what? <laughs> no, who fucking can't like, <laughs> because it's like, you know, what? I'm, I'm having the, I have the respect for the world and the players to be like, you didn't like that. I didn't love it. Let's call that one a, a joke, you know? It's just, and that's sort of the texture of this world is it can support things like that. But like, honestly, to me, a big part of like how I care about it is I, and this is, I, I understand not everybody can do this. If you can't do this, like I fucking, I feel you, man. But like, I can do it because I'm playing with my friends who I trust and I trust not to like actually hurt me with this. Is like, I'll put my own shit into the, not like, it's like, you're gonna deal with my problem now. But like, I will put like, I have uh, a vampire character who's like struggling with like a blood addiction, which like, I don't wanna get too deep into it, but like that comes from my own, like, not blood, but you know, that like, it, you know, like yeah. that, like that comes from my own life. And it's like, I only put that in the game because I trusted the other five people at the table to know what I was like playing with there. And that it was like, this isn't a thing for me to like play a psychodrama at you. It's not like, it's not that, this is just like, just so you know, like this world matters. We are being silly, and there is like a the, it like you know we this is like a joke fueled reality. But like, but within that, we care. I care about your characters, and that means I'm also going to care about my characters. And like, the way I think of it is like you know the ephemera, like the stuff along the edges, like that stuff is fun and silly, and like people can just die, and like a kid walks out a door and like, oh, Wolf got him, what fuck, yeah. who cares? But yeah. like, but you guys and your characters and what you want, that matters, and I and I sincerely care about it, and I am on, I'm rooting for you, and I'm demonstrating that for you by making myself vulnerable as well, and putting a character out into the world that like, you could really hurt me by like, <laughs> you know, like being irresponsible with this, because I know they never in a million years will. I just, I know they wouldn't, I know they wouldn't do that. And like, yo, I understand, like not everybody can do it. Not everybody is DMing for a table where like that's possible, but it's what I did and it felt really good and I don't regret it. <laughs> I love that. And I think that's also incredible advice too, the idea of like making sure to make yourself vulnerable, which if you're with people you trust, I mean, that that's the thing is it sounds scary, but it's also something that I think we all deeply want because it's a, because yes, you are safer when you are not vulnerable, but goddamn, is it exhausting? And part of telling stories like this is to open up and to find meaning and catharsis and value uh, and all those things, especially if you can do that with your friends, my God. Uh, yeah, and I think definitely, look, it's like, you can't not put yourself into the game. Anyone who claims like, I have created a work of art which reflects me as a person in no way, a perfectly sterile cultural artifact with no influences from beyond its own iteration, like that, that's impossible. 
So like, find it also me. sounds bad. If it was <laughs> like, I don't want to watch or listen to that. It does sound like nasty garbage. Yeah, I hate it. Um, but there is a. Um, I totally agree. First of all, with just that the beauty of like again putting parts of yourself into the game. Um, and what I would say to, to this question of like the, the improvisations, what makes them matter or not. I have watched things that I spent lots of time on hit the table in front of my players. And the, I mean, we've, and, and then be truly like, whatever. Yes. And I have watched things pulled directly from my butt go and people go, this is the greatest gift Thank It's listen, uh, you know, I think I've said this before, but like, if you, get your kid an expensive present that you had to save up for it. It was, you know, like you, you really want them to love it and they open it up and they take the present uh, and discard it and just toss it away and play with the box for hours and days and weeks. That's a successful gift. That is successful. Yeah. You've, you, you've made something that people love. And so what I would say to this person is you're having a hard time valuing the, those creations of yours, which are extemporaneous. I think that that it comes from a place of judgment, which is not rooted in reality. Meaning it is, what I mean to say is valuing pre-created things over extemporaneously created things is fully arbitrary. Like how could you articulate why that matter? Like, no, it's better because you did it earlier. What's better about earlier? You did it earlier. Like there's no, you can't, there's no mm -hmm. actual way to articulate why it's more meaningful that you pre-created something uh, or that you planned something. But I know that if you, if you're not already intuiting that, if that's not already embedded in your bones, kind of like, why would me just yelling it at you make you care more? So let me see if I can reorient uh, here to, to, if you, if the thing that matters and the thing that's motivating you to be a dungeon master is the joy and involvement and engagement and contentedness of your players, then shouldn't you let that authority be the guiding authority that provides value to things? And I guarantee you, if you've played with the average D&D player, I would say on the whole, they tend to prefer those things created in the moment. We've all had that experience with the DM of the random NPC that you didn't even make like a last name for that gets a swiftly adopted and loved by by your PCs. So what I would say is this, right? Like, you, like um, your creations, uh, if if you if you want to put value on creations, if you're in if you're in the game of judging your own work, which I wouldn't recommend other than just on a cursory level to try and like improve your craft, yeah. but like don't get don't get in your head about it. But if you want to judge your work, judge it by the joy it brings your players. And I guarantee you that you nobody has run a game where the only things their players loved. Uh, were the things that were pre-created or pre-planned? Probably, uh, I would say, if I had to, if I had to bet money on it, I would say it's not 50-50. It's probably slightly skewed toward things created in the moment. Because why? Players know when you are listening. Yes. And they know, and they know when something has been affected. Like I actually, that's why you get like the Sam Smorkel effect. That's why you get the like. What is that? I'm sorry. 
uh, Sam Smarkle is, is a meme that travels around of 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 like a stereotypical group of D&D players who walk into a tavern and the DM goes, you see a mysterious stranger oh, yes, yeah. cloaked and whatever. And they say this, uh, and you see there is a, a, a passing noble eyeing you with villainous intent and a small goblin at the bar. And beyond that, the barkeep who offers you and the PCs go, who's the goblin at the bar? Yeah. And you go, um, his name's Sam Smarko. And they go, uh, this was bounced around Tumblr for a long time. But this sort of Sam Smirkle effect, I think PCs can tell when they're, it's a little bit of that malevolent, mischievous, what we, yeah. what we call an improv, or what you used to, we don't call it that anymore, but what used to be called pimping, that idea of like- It's uh, probably of, good that we say goodbye to that. Yeah, horribly problematic, terrible phrase, but I don't know what the new word for it is, but you know this thing I'm Sam talking Sam Smirkle, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of, uh, basically it's a concept to, 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 uh, it's like an improv when you when you would go like, hey, you're that guy that loves to do push-ups, right? And me as the improviser goes, yeah, I love to do Fuck push-ups. You. Yeah. And now you you're now you're being forced to do push-ups on the stage. So it's it's a little bit of a mischievous thing where you're forcing yeah. someone to do something out of the scene. Backflip I think, Benny. Yeah, and hey, it's backflip Benny, the backflip guy. Do a backflip. Um, uh, but there's that element of um, what do you call it? The the uh, with that Sam Smorgle thing, I think PCs know when their attention and love for something is actually helping to create it. Like you as a DM yes. are a little bit stumped and they go, no, 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 no. We can, our, like our spotlight eyes on this will bring it to life as our DM is forced to create it in front of us. Oh, dude, it's so many times on routine, like I'll have an NPC show up and be like, this bathroom's closed or whatever. And like Joe, it's always Joe. Joe will say like, hey, yeah, what was your name? And it's like, fuck, you know, you know, you know I didn't name this fucking guy. <laughs> Here we go. And like, it's, and you know, I play it up. It's kayfabe again. It's like, I play it up. I get annoyed, but it's like, God, that is the most generous shit in the world. It's like, ah, fuck yeah. He knows when we're all on our back feet and like, oh, fuck, wait, what are we doing? That's when the game really comes alive. Oh, that is, yeah. I, I love that so much. The, the idea of like, and I think yeah, you're right. It's very playful. Cause, but but yeah. again, it is that thing. Again, and, and just like in answer to the question, I think it's it's this idea of like, I players love to watch DMs create at the table, and I think actually have kind of a special attachment to things when they are aware that it was created at the table. That their participation in it helped. That that through their listening, it was kind of like modeled or created in that moment. So yeah. so what I would say again with this question, obviously I look, I do understand where the question is coming from because I know that there is this weird vibe in the air of like isn't it more impressive if I planned it than if I improvised it. If you want to base your value system on what is more theoretically impressive, like aha, I anticipated your every move then that's fine. But I think probably a better thing to value is actual felt joy at the table, yeah. in which case improvisations, I think, do more than their fair share of creating that joy in the moment. It's uh -huh. a, you know, another, so I don't mean to keep the, the, the no, drag out it. a question, but like um, something I've found that I find to be very helpful for me to help with this is let your NPCs listen to the players and like hear them and change their minds. Yes. Like, let a villain become an ally because they were like, fuck, good point. Like, 
You know what I mean? It's like, if they actually scored a good point, like, what are you doing? Like, let them do, you know, like, they earned it. I also, I think that's fucking great advice. Look, so much of this is about about escaping to a fantasy world where anything is possible. And in the year 2020, what is more fantastical than someone listening to a reasonable point and changing their mind about their worldview? Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, a world of sword and sorcery, a tale of passion and betrayal. It's <laughs> a world where a villain might actually realize their wrongs and seek to amend them. Um, uh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, I think we had time for one more, uh, one more question in here. Oh, this is a great one. Uh, this one from Jared Warnke. Thank you, Jared. Um, uh, wanted to ask you about incorporating character backstories into the main story better. Sometimes my players will come with a pre-prepared character and generic backstory. How can I better engage them in role-playing moments? Um, uh, well, there's a lot. There's a lot here, but but Branson, I also wanted to talk too because uh, uh, I feel like Rude Tales is incredible at incorporating PC backstory oh, into the action of the campaign, um, which is just so deeply satisfying to listen to as an audience member. Um, uh, what do you What do you feel like the role of PC backstory is? And like for for Rude Tales, did you like collaborate with your players on backstory stuff? I do and I don't, and it depends on what exactly the backstory is. Like we have an episode where uh, Tim plays this Kenku stir fry who like, the, this is not, this is a spoiler, this is the first episode. He can speak as a man does and he doesn't just mimic people, which like, thank fucking God, that would be like, a pain <laughs> in the ass. But like, so and he was like part of an old bandit group. And then like, we had an episode where he meets the old bandit group that he was from and you just learn a little bit about where this guy came from and what his life was like before this story. And that was one where it's like, I talked to Tim a little, or I was like, what do you, what did you see for the, like, what did you think? And he was like, I don't know. I, I thought maybe like these three things. I was like, got them. You'll see these later. Everything else. I assume I have permission here. Anything you, you don't want me to touch on. And he was like, you fucking fly free, man, do whatever. And I did whatever. And like, that's, that's how, you know what I mean? It's like, the way I think of it is a little bit, it's like, we are, we're building a home together. And like, I don't bring them a full on wall yeah, or like a full on fireplace. Like I bring some bricks and I'm like, I got this idea. What do you, you got this one? We're going to put this one down here. I've got this one. And so we build it together. And so it's not my show, it's our show. And I think of backstory as just like a cornerstone. It's like a big, it's like a, it's a, an important brick that the character brings to the table. And the thing is, you know, we did our mini series, Come at the King, and some of them had like pretty big backstories that like just didn't factor in. You know, it just like it didn't it didn't come up. Yeah. And like I talked to them about it, and like you know we're getting down to the to the end. we've now wrapped it up. We we're getting coming close to the end of it. We we're about to wrap up, and I was like, anything in that backstory you wanted touched on? And they were like, I don't fucking care. It's fine. And it's like I think a lot of times when I build a character, I will. I'll, I can't help but I'll think of a backstory and then we get to play and the second that character talks that backstory is out the window it's gone I don't care anymore about the backstory because it's it's just it's like it's weighing me down man let me fly like it's you know it's like it's not always it's there to help build the character it is not always useful in the actual implementation or playing of the character so I try to feel it out and be like are you still feeling this one because you're not locked it like we can do a new one if you want I actually 
I think this is really important advice. When you're starting a new campaign, give yourself a couple sessions to keep things a little volcanic. Like, keep things a little, because I have definitely had that experience of playing a character. You're playing it and you had a vision. Maybe you had an idea for their backstory. Maybe you had an idea for what their personality is gonna be like. And as you start playing them, you just realize like, like either A, this character just isn't shaping up that way. Like they're just, they, they seem to want me to move in another direction. Or you as a player are like, hmm, this doesn't feel like it's vibing with everybody else. Yeah. It doesn't feel like, there's a million reasons to, I think, go back, especially in those early sessions. Uh, and do what's going to make things the most fun, even if it means slightly altering canon a little bit. Um, I think backstory is a definite place for that. Um, uh, like everything else, you know, it is it, it is a toy. Uh, it Should you wish to play with it, it is there to be played with. And if it doesn't come up, it doesn't come up. That doesn't mean it was a mistake to craft it in the first place. It just means that uh, it wasn't the object of focus during this session, campaign, what have you. Yeah. Um, Hell I mean, I've yeah. plenty of, oh, sorry, are we done? No, go for it. No, no, go for it. I just had plenty of like backstory shit on Rude Tales that is like, I had this plan for the character and they said one fucking thing, one fucking sentence in the show that like contradicted that. And it's like, well, goodbye. Like, <laughs> throw it off a canyon. Like that doesn't make any sense anymore, you know? Because that line that they said, they said it for a reason. And I, you know, if I'm really listening to them and not listening to my plans from several hours later, it's like, you know what? That's better because it came from you. It can't have come from me. Like yeah. it's, I would just write a book other, you know, otherwise like this is our story. So your line is very important there. Hell yes. Uh, I love that we have ended once again on the most important thing you can do, which is listen to your players. Gang, this has been Adventuring Academy. Our fabulous guest today has been Mr. Branson Reese. Uh, uh, Thanks for having me. Oh, what a goddamn joy. Uh, please go check out Root Tales of Magic. Uh, also, uh, please uh, buy Hell Was Full, wherever fine books are sold, with the exception of Amazon. Uh, boo, Amazon. If um, you could. I, look, I understand. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, but uh, uh, incredible thanks to Mr. Branson. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. Thanks for uh, having me. Uh, and to everyone else, uh, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Adventuring Academy. Woo!